During the pandemic, uh, the QAnon movement has been, appears to be gaining a lot of followers. Can you talk about what you think about that and what you have to say to people who are following this movement right now? Well, I don't know much about the movement other than I understand they like me very much, uh, which I appreciate. I have heard that it is gaining in popularity. I've heard these are people that love our country. Well, at the crux of the theory is this belief that you are secretly saving the world from this satanic cult of pedophiles and cannibals. Does that sound like something you are behind? Or well, I haven't, I haven't heard that, but uh, is that supposed to be a bad thing or a good thing? I mean, you know. <laughs> That's an excerpt from episode three of our new Conspiracyland series that explores in part the relationship between President Trump and the bizarre conspiracy cult known as QAnon, whose believers are convinced there's a secret deep state cabal of child sex traffickers and Satan worshipers who are seeking to sabotage Trump's presidency. The series primarily deals with the story behind one of Trump's stranger tweet storms from last spring. Messages that pushed a completely discredited conspiracy theory, suggesting that one of the president's media critics, MSNBC host Joe Scarborough, had murdered a young woman who worked for him 19 years ago. But in the course of reporting it, I ran across QAnon and the role its believers played in disseminating the same false conspiracy theory once Trump started pushing it. At first, I didn't pay much attention because I figured QAnon's beliefs are way too outlandish to have much traction with the general public. But after the series ran, I discovered that the links between Trump world and QAnon are far greater than I ever imagined, and that the National Republican Congressional Campaign Committee was even running ads that appear designed to appeal to QAnon believers. We'll talk to one of the targets of those ads, Congressman Tom Malinowski of New Jersey, and to a Time Magazine reporter, Charlotte Alter, who has found surprising support for QAnon among voters in Wisconsin on this special bonus episode of Skullduggery's Conspiracy Land. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So I've got to say, for all the attention that QAnon has gotten, the Q folks who show up at Trump rallies, the FBI's concerns that this cult could lead to acts of domestic terrorism, I was sort of blown away to see that the NRCC, which is the official campaign arm of House Republicans, was running ads that are effectively dog whistles to the QAnon cult. You know, I thought surely these ideas that Democrats are somehow in league with sex traffickers and pedophiles is just too ridiculous to take seriously. But I was wrong. Yeah. And um, that's, you know, just one example. The fact of the matter is the Republican National Com Campaign Committee is running ads all over the country 
dog whistling to QAnon supporters. And the reason is, is because it's there's a receptive audience out there because conspiracy theories have infected our politics in a pretty serious way. You know, it used to be that conspiracy, you talked about conspiracy theorists as, you know, people who were on the margins of society, the tinfoil hat crowd. And what's really scary is that there is a kind of a mainstreaming of conspiracy theories going on. And, you know, for all of the concerns that we have been talking about, about the, the threats to our institutions and to our democracy, in some ways, this is the foundational one. Everything is built on this because for a democracy to work, you have to have, there has to be a kind of a shared sense of reality, of facts uh, that people can rely on. Um, and so I, I can't think of anything more important than shining a spotlight on not only the conspiracy theories that are taking root, but the politicians, starting with the president of the United States, who are exploiting them, uh, capitalizing on them, and elevating them today. And that's uh, what the Conspiracy Land series has done. I totally agree. And just to amplify your point about that these ads are running nationally, in one of the NRCC ads against a a Democratic candidate, I think it's Michigan, uh, they're calling the guy a pedo-sex poet. Another is accused of of circulating sex dolls. There's another candidate in New Jersey who's accused of um, protecting sex offenders on playgrounds. And the ad that really grabbed me is the ad that's running against Tom Malinowski of New Jersey. We've got Congressman Malinowski now, so let's talk to him about it. We now have with us Congressman Tom Malinowski from New Jersey. Congressman, thanks for joining us. I wanted to ask you, what was your first reaction when you saw this ad that the National Republican Campaign Committee is running against you? My first reaction was, that's so crazy. Nobody is going to believe this crap. People will recoil against it. It'll backfire against them. And then, you know, I watched it a couple of more times. And the more I watched it, the more disgusted I became. I remembered that these ads play not just on cable television. They play on YouTube. At some point, probably every 10-year-old kid in my district is going to see that ad when they're watching their shows. And as much as I think it's going to hurt my opponent more than me, it's still it's still really unpleasant that that kind of darkness, that kind of fear is being propagated in, in my community because of a political campaign. And I should point out that uh, the um, Republican Campaign Committee has spent a quarter of a million dollars airing this ad in New York markets. You're district is covered by the New York media market. But just so people understand what we're talking about here, we're going to play an excerpt from the ad and then explore its factual or non-factual basis with you after we do so. So let's listen to the ad. In every city, in every neighborhood, around every corner, sex offenders are living among us. 
But Tom Malinowski tried to make it easier for predators to hide in the shadows. Malinowski worked as the top lobbyist for a radical group that strongly opposed the National Sex Offender Registry. Law enforcement praised the National Sex Offender Registry that Tom Malinowski led an effort to stop. So just uh, in terms of the facts here, did you lead an effort to stop the National Sex Offender Registry? Uh, no, and, and actually, just going back, it's been more than half a million dollars spent on this ad, Mike. Oh, half a million dollars now. Okay. At least. It's still, it's still running. And the answer is no. I, I absolutely did not lead or in any way take part in an effort to get rid of the sex offender registry, nor did my organization, the radical organization they're referring to as Human Rights Watch, one of the most respected human rights and humanitarian organizations in the world. And they did, in fact, advocate for some changes to a crime bill that added whole categories of, of people to the National Sex Offender Registry. And the issue, which, again, I didn't work on the issue, but the issue was apparently youth offenders, you know, kids who might have been caught sleeping with other kids or somebody, you know, an 18-year-old sleeping with a 16-year-old, should that person be on the registry for life? Those were the kinds of issues that were being debated. But so number one, nobody was lobbying to get rid of the list. Uh, I wasn't lobbying on it at all, much less leading the effort. In fact, Congressman, you know, I think Isakoff and I both know, having interviewed you uh, during that period, that you weren't involved in domestic issues at all. You were doing, you know, national security related issues, human rights, foreign policy overseas, you know, whether it was torture in the Bush administration or the drone program in the Obama administration, right? Well, that's correct. But, but why let facts stand in the way of fear? Right. And, and I want to actually want folks to focus on the first opening lines of the ad before it even says anything about me. Forget what it says about me. You know, the line where they say, in every town, in every neighborhood, around every corner, sex offenders are living amongst us. That is QAnon right there. It, it, it opens up with this picture that suggests they're everywhere. And that's what I object to the most. But what this is doing is playing on and amplifying the paranoia and fear that this conspiracy mongering cult is promoting to millions and millions of Americans and then taking advantage of it to help a political candidate. So here's the thing, you know, a lot of people when they hear what QAnon promotes, you know, the idea of this deep state cabal of pedophiles and Satan worshipers, it sounds so ridiculous that you conclude surely this is not a message that voters, that it has any political impact on voters. And yet here we have, you know, the Republican campaign committee running this ad. They're running ads against other candidates around the country. One is accused of being a pedo sex poet, another of, uh, you know, protecting sex offenders on playgrounds. You are a, a protector of pedophiles. How do you explain how this, you know, completely outlandish conspiracy cult 
could get so much traction or appear to have so much traction that the National Republican Congressional Campaign Committee is running ads to appeal to it. First of all, I don't think it's going to work for them in my race. So, you know, don't don't get me wrong. But it is a force in the circles where they live, apparently. There were, I think, around 70 pro-QAnon, explicitly pro-QAnon candidates running for Congress as Republicans this year. And a few of them have made it far enough that they're probably going to get elected to Congress. There are several million people who take part in QAnon forums on social media. That's a substantial number of people. It sounds absolutely crazy. But you know what else was crazy? The Protocols of the Elders of Zion and the ancient anti-Semitic blood libel, which is exactly what this is. You know, that was the classic conspiracy theory behind anti-Semitism going back well over a century is that there is a secret cabal of powerful people who happen to be Jewish who are controlling everything that's happening in the world, manipulating your life, and they're trying to steal your children for strange rituals that involve drinking their blood. So, yeah, it's totally crazy, but this has been around forever, and it has contributed to really some of the worst events in all of human history. Congressman, I want to ask you about something that you must have had to think about and, and grapple with, which is, you know, the more you, in some ways, the more you push back against these conspiracy theories, the more they thrive sometimes. Now, uh, as I understand it, you and a uh, Republican uh, member of Congress introduced a resolution, a bipartisan res- resolution condemning QAnon and these conspiracy theories. I-, I have to think that when you do that, you also stir them up gets you on their radar screen. Maybe that's why then the Republicans ran these ads. But there is this notion of um, belief echoes, which is, you know, the more you try to knock them down, the more you give conspiracy theories oxygen. So how do you deal with that? And what do you think? I mean, we in the media grapple with this as well. What is the best way to push back against them without elevating them? It's a really good question. A year ago, I probably wouldn't have done this for precisely that reason. But at this point, they have been elevated. There are millions of people online obsessing with this stuff. And and, it's not like I think that if we pass a congressional resolution, they're all going to see the errors of of their ways. But I think it's really important with the president of the United States not only refusing to repudiate QAnon, but signaling that he may approve of it other Republicans kind of toying with with QAnon or, or, or trying to take advantage of, you know, to exploit it to, to win elections. I think it's really important to send an overwhelming bipartisan signal of repudiation. Yeah. I mean, have you gotten that? It has your resolution, where does your resolution stand? And are you getting overwhelming bipartisan support in the Congress? It's the resolution itself is fully bipartisan. We have an equal number of Republican and Democratic co-sponsors. It still has to get a vote. And we only have a couple of weeks left in this session. And I am hoping I am I'm working to try to get a vote. And if we do, 
I believe that there will be a solid majority of Republicans, not to, of course, all the Democrats as well, mm-hmm. that will make this statement. And, and I think that will be good for the country. You know, heck, I want to give the Republicans an opportunity to show that they're against us. Who's your chief Republican co-sponsor on this? Denver Riggleman, as well as Adam Kinzinger and Brian Fitzpatrick. Have you shown them these ads that their campaign committee, their national campaign committee, is running against you and uh, asked them to call on the NRCC to put a stop to it? I have shown, I think, one of them the ad. And, you know, when I have these conversations in private with my Republican colleagues in the House, the, the reasonable ones, they roll their eyes. They're disgusted. They they hate what Trump is doing to their party, but they also, you know, it's the same old thing on every issue. They say they feel helpless to do much about it. But why is that? I mean, they, they need the money, too. You know, the, and, and this is this is a very important thing for people to understand in my race that most of the ads that I'm running on TV, on the Internet, I'm paying for with money that I'm raising from actual people who support my campaign. The overwhelming majority of the ads that my Republican opponent has up or that are up on his behalf are paid for by national Republican super PACs like the NRCC. And so you know, my opponent, like a lot of Republicans, just could not run a campaign, a competitive campaign, without the national party's financial support. And so it makes it much harder for a lot of these guys to cut themselves off. And of course, Trump and his people control these organizations now fully. I should point out that your opponent is Tom Kane Jr., New Jersey state senator. I think he was the leader of the Republicans in the state Senate and the son of Tom Kane, the widely respected former governor of New Jersey. And yet his campaign is retweeting these ads and and pushing them as well. That is the case. Yes. How do you explain that? I don't think, well, I, I think it's a mistake for him to be doing it, but I just don't think he has very much to run on. He can't, in my district, he can't run by defending Trump. At the same time, he's terrified to run away from Trump for the reasons that I mentioned, because he'd have no money. And there is a, a base of, of folks in, in the party, even in my district, that, that are very strong Trump supporters. His record in the New Jersey state legislature is not great anymore for for our district on issues like guns and a woman's right to choose and health care. Um, and these guys don't really, you know, the Republican Party has no platform. It's very hard for them to, to, to lay out a vision of what they would do if they had power in the Congress other than whatever the president wants. And what's very little else to do than, than to kind of try to knock us off with these kinds of crazy attacks. I wonder how much Donald Trump is driving these conspiracy theories and how much he's just taking advantage of, you know, forces that are already out there. I mean, how much do you, to what extent do you think he's responsible for the kind of, you know, mainstreaming of QAnon and and conspiracy theories? He doesn't have to be promoting the actual QAnon theory 
to be contributing to its ascent. Remember, one of the main things that he has led his followers to believe is that mainstream media and institutions cannot be trusted. There is nothing true. And you know the saying, if nothing is true, everything is possible. So the first step in, in, in the rise of QAnon is the taking people's trust away from legitimate sources of, of news and information, and then telling them you got to go on the internet and Google stuff and find your own truth. And that, that lays the groundwork for something like this, which then takes these ancient conspiracy theories and addresses them in, in, in a new way and takes advantage of social media algorithms spreading stuff like wildfire. So, yeah, I mean, I think Trump very much created the environment where, where QAnon can thrive. And then, you know, you know, QAnon thinks that Trump is the savior, right? Trump is, is leading a secretly trying to root out this deep state cabal, blah, blah, blah. And when he's asked about it and he says, I kind of like that idea that I'm the hero of this. The social media companies have taken some steps uh, to deal with this by shutting down QAnon-associated accounts. Uh, but uh, do you favor more regulation of platforms like Facebook and, and Twitter to deal with this issue? Yeah, so social media companies are, are shutting down more accounts, but that's a game of whack-a-mole. What they need to be doing and are unwilling to do is to change the way their algorithms work. Most recruitment to extremist groups, including QAnon in the United States, is driven by Facebook's algorithm or Google's algorithm. Because what these algorithms do is they know what everybody's searching for. They have massive amounts of data on all of us. And they feed us precisely the information and the content that is most likely to keep us glued to the screen so that we see more ads and buy more stuff. And, you know, Facebook's own internal estimate is that over 60% of recruitment to extremist groups is due to their algorithm. But so is much of their profit. So that's where I think we need to go as we think about establishing new rules for, for social media. So is that is that a legislative matter if you are reelected? I mean, is there specific legislation you have in mind that can address this issue? I'm working on it. There are a number of ideas out there. One idea is to require people to opt in to algorithmic promotion, to opt into these recommendation engines that select what we're going to see on social media sites. Another option would be to take away some of the immunity that the social media com companies currently enjoy under Section 230 mm -hmm. of the Telecommunications Decency Act for content that they are algorithmically promoting. So the theory is they may not be responsible for the content, but if they write an algorithm that causes that content to reach millions of people, based on data that suggests those people will like that content, then they really are like, they are the recruiters. That is, yeah, that, that is fascinating because it takes away the censorship free speech argument. Yeah, it would not actually speak to whether the content should be allowed. 
right? but rather whether the content should be promoted. And if it is being promoted, then shouldn't the company promoting it have some legal responsibility if, you know, someone gets killed? And, and, not, just, and not just promoted, but in a sense turbocharged. <laughs> what Facebook does with the massive data that it has is that it scours the planet Earth for everybody who has a proclivity to be interested in QAnon and that it introduces those people to QAnon or white supremacy or radical Marxism or Islamic extremism, et cetera. And, and yes, they take down sites, which is good, but there's still plenty out there that people can be introduced to. I mean, we've even run that experiment in my office, like get a clean computer, look at some really nasty videos on YouTube, like white supremacist stuff, and then watch the recommendation go to work, recommendation engine go to work. And sure enough, it's recommending more stuff just like that and is the driver of much of this problem. No question. This is um, one of the uh, bigger issues of our era right now with um, the traction these conspiracy theories are getting on, on social media. That's what our Conspiracy Land series has been about. So, Congressman, I want to thank you for checking in. Um, you know, just final word, I'll say I've, uh, I've been around for a while, as has Clydeman. We've, you know, I've seen a lot of campaign ads that, uh, you know, are, are low blows and can be defined as political uh, mudslinging. But I got to say, this one takes the cake. Well, I guess, uh, you know, my, my opponent has achieved a distinction then. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Congressman. And now for another perspective on the QAnon phenomenon, we have with us Charlotte Alter, Time Magazine reporter who recently did a story about the traction that QAnon was getting among voters that she was talking to in Wisconsin. Charlotte, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, guys. So question that, you know, first pops up on any conversation about QAnon, their beliefs seem so outlandish that it's hard to imagine that there's any real segment of voters that actually believe this stuff. Yet you found otherwise. Yeah, so I went to... I just got back from a road trip across Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. And um, I started off in Wisconsin, and I was there actually to report an entirely different story about the suburbs and the violence after the Jacob Blake shooting, and I was just focused in a totally different direction. But as I talked to people, I just noticed that over and over and over again, people would say this crazy stuff. Um, these things would trickle into the conversations where I'd start off the conversation asking about Trump and Biden and Jacob Blake and Black Lives Matter. And by three or four minutes in, people, not, again, not a majority of people, but enough people that it was notable and alarming. You said in the story that you interviewed, out of dozens of people you interviewed, about yeah. one in five, so 20 percent, so, dabbling in these yes. kinds of conspiracy theories. 
So yeah, so I interviewed at that point that I wrote the story, I'd interviewed uh, 87 people and roughly one in five had voiced some kind of conspiracy theory. So that's not all QAnon. That's including things like COVID is a hoax and there are like, uh, the Democrats are going to send UN troops in to fix the election and like all kinds of other stuff. Uh, but QAnon was by far sort of the most prevalent of those theories. And where are they seeing this? Where are they hearing it? Well, actually, Isagoff, before we get to that, can you just give us a little bit of a, a flavor for some of the things that these people were saying? Because Mike said outlandish, but I mean, that like downplays what these yeah. things are. So effectively... What QAnon believers believe is that there is a deep state of, you know, Democrats and Hollywood elites and insiders in Washington who are working to undermine President Trump. And Q is like the leader of the resistance against this deep state to protect President Trump. But another weird dimension of that conspiracy theory is that not only is this deep state cabal, which is what they call it, trying to undermine President Trump, they also are running a child sex trafficking network uh, that involves, you know, trafficking children, raping and torturing them, and then extracting their blood for a chemical that they believe is created when a child is violently tortured, that they think this cabal likes to drink this chemical. So obviously there are like major anti-Semitic overtones to this. This is not that different than, you know, yeah, the blood old. libels, the blood right. libels in Europe. And of course, this also, I mean, this kind of started, didn't it, with uh, Pizzagate? Yeah, well, so, P well, I, I wouldn't say it started with Pizzagate. I would say Pizzagate was the first symptom of a disease, visible symptom of this disease that has been brewing for a while. So I kind of like to think of it like if you, if you have a, a disease and the symptoms are like boils, I think that Pizzagate was the first boil. And where are people reading this, seeing it, hearing about it? They are reading it and seeing it and hearing about it on YouTube and Facebook. Um, and when they're not able to find it on YouTube and Facebook, they go out and search for it on you know, other social platforms. One of the women said that she was using a Russian-owned search engine called Yandex which honestly, until she said it to me, I had never even heard of. So there is this kind of, these the, the YouTube algorithms in particular, although the Facebook algorithm also does this, basically amplify the most extreme content that somebody might be interested in. So it sees, I was describing it to somebody the other day as like a water slide to hell. It's like you get on at the top and it just takes you down into this, into this cesspool of these ideas. But ha hasn't Facebook and Twitter and YouTube said they are taking this stuff down, that they are scrapping these accounts, canceling them? So how is it that people can still find this stuff on their platforms? Because it's not the accounts, it's the algorithm. So. If you take down a big QAnon account, but you don't change the algorithm that directs people towards this information, it doesn't matter because another, you know, you'll take one, Facebook or YouTube will take one page down and then four other new ones will crop up the next day. And the algorithms 
are basically designed to keep your eyeballs on the site. So if you're already somebody who is prone to conspiracy thinking, if you're already somebody who's searching, for example, like 9-11 truth or conspiracies, or moon landing was the hoax conspiracy, or who killed Jeffrey Epstein conspiracy, which by the way, you know, one of the tricky things about all of this is like many conspiracies, there are grains of truth to this. So, you know, people say things to me like, well, Jeffrey Epstein was pedophile and he was friends with all of these Hollywood elites and Democrats. So how far-fetched is this? And so they make a mental leap from Jeffrey Epstein, we know that that's true. So is it that implausible to think that actually these people are all in cahoots with each other for this giant sex trafficking ring? So Charlotte, you point out in in your story that conspiracy theories have been around in this country for a very long time. You quote the historian Richard Hofstetter saying that American politics uh, is an arena for angry minds. But something there's something different going on here, which is that the kind of almost mainstreaming of conspiracy theories. And you say in the story, after four years of Trump, the paranoia no, uh, is no longer relegated to the margins uh, of society. So how pervasive, I know it's hard to know this, but what is your sense of how pervasive this is at this point? I think it's really hard to know, and that's why I found this reporting to be so alarming, was, for example, in 2016, I had a lot of conversations with people at Trump rallies where they spouted crazy conspiracy theories about, you know, Hillary Clinton killed Vince Foster and all kinds of that stuff. Now I was meeting, you know, this summer or in September, I was meeting these people in parking lots, in front of Walmart, on the street corner, on the way to the post office, of more random sampling. And so that's why it was alarming that it showed up so much in a, in a random sampling, not just people who already are at a Trump rally. So it's understandable that they probably are, pre, are have at least some kind of willingness to believe this stuff. But I think that there's two main reasons that this is happening now. One is obviously the internet, which has kind of taken down a lot of the barriers around information and what people believe. And it's, it's, it's not only kind of destroyed a lot of credible sources of information, but it's also injected all of this misinformation and conspiracy thinking into the American bloodstream, I think. And Trump has exacerbated that because he kind of winks at a lot. He, he promotes conspiracy theories himself. He hasn't fully embraced QAnon yet, but he kind of winks at it sometimes. Well, he called them people who love our country. Right, exactly. And he and he created birtherism, which was, you know, one of the one of the foundational conspiracy theories of the last like 20 or 10 years or something, 15 years. But also there's I think there also is something to the idea of people living more of their lives online now than they might have done earlier. So when I talked to historians about this, they would say like, you know, people who believed the moon landing was a hoax, for example, you would have to like really seek out a community of people to talk to about how the moon landing was a hoax. And you'd have to get your hands on a special pamphlet and you'd have to kind of work hard with like mail-in orders of like special magazines that would reinforce this for you. And if you were to go to your normal like church group, for example, and tell everybody that the moon landing was a hoax, 
all the other ladies there would be like, mm, I don't know. And you'd be met with skepticism in the real world. And one thing that I was hearing from these people in Mount Lebanon, Pennsylvania, after the story came out, I talked, was talking to more QAnon people. And one woman said something really revealing, which was that because of the pandemic, she was, she was furloughed from her job. And so she's had more time to do her research. And doing your research is the red flag of these conspiracy theories. When somebody says, well, I've done a lot of research, you know that what they, you know that they're about to lay a conspiracy theory on you. <laughs> so going, what was they're it They're going like? down that rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> so what are these people like when you're talking to them? I mean, do they seem angry? Do they seem pleasant? Do they seem up in arms? And also, just as a reporter, when you're listening to this stuff, I'm just curious. We all have different styles and techniques of doing interviews. How did you respond when you would hear this stuff from the people you were talking to? So what I found pretty chilling was that was the lack of visible external cues that the people I was talking to were about to lay this on me. So it wasn't like I was going up to somebody like muttering with like a tinfoil hat on and like a big Q t-shirt on. Like these were white suburban ladies who looked, you know, I, I approached them because I was there to talk to the normal voters of America, you know, and I, I, you know, I always, as any reporter does, you always do a little bit of like visual sort of screening of like, okay, well, that person looks like a voter, that person looks like a voter, you know, like, I want to make sure that I have a good racial dynamic. I want to make sure I'm getting, you know, normal people who are going about their day. And so that was one of the things that was chilling about this reporting is going up to apparently sane and rational people from the outside and then hearing them spout this. But my tactic when I'm talking to them is to be like, huh, like, tell me more about that. I'm curious, why do you believe that? Why haven't I heard anything about this? And then they say, oh, the media covers it up. You know, you wouldn't have heard it in the mainstream media. It's never going to be in the New York Times. And then I say, well, you know, what do you think of, you know, oftentimes when it's, when it's a COVID, because with QAnon, there's no, like, it's so far off on a different planet that there's sort of nothing you can even say to it. Like, but when some, when people say things like, well, COVID is a hoax, I say things, well, you know, what about the people who died of COVID? What do you think about that? What about more than 200,000 people? Oh, those numbers are baked. You know, that's not real. They're saying that people who died of a heart attack died of COVID. My friend's friend is a nurse and she says there's no one in her hospital with COVID. So, but, you know, in particular, one of the things that I, do often when I'm talking to normal people who are not famous or not like professional politicians or operatives is if I'm, if they're just voters, I like to call them back and make sure I'm getting their name spelled correctly, make sure I'm getting their age. And often I read their quote back to them. And I did that for this story. And every single one of these people, when I called them back and I said, you know, and your name is spelled like this, and your age is this, and you believe that children are being trafficked under the, you know, United States so that the cabal can drink their blood, they all said, yes, correct. Including the woman who said that she was going to, if Biden wins, that she was going to go into the garage and gas herself and her children to death. 
So I said, like, you know, just confirming you live in Ozaki County. This is your name. This is your age. And just confirming you're going to gas your children to death if, if Biden wins. And she says, yes, correct. So it's not a, it's not like a mistake, you know, <laughs> like, it's not, it's not like they kind of got carried away in the moment or they were joking and it was sarcasm and they didn't really mean it. And that was one of the things that I found particularly like, chilling about this. But otherwise, they seem to you to be kind of normal, well-functioning, stable people, right? I mean, I love your uh, the the yes. w- the woman that you lead with, Kelly Farrow, uh, who you know has got her little mini leather backpack and the brunette top knot and the ombre manicure. I didn't know what that was. I had to look it up. Uh, <laughs> <but> <laughs> But and she's coming home. She's coming back from yoga or something. I mean, that's the thing that's going so to the chi- post office. Yeah, going to the post office. Okay, whatever. I mean, that's the thing that's so chilling about this because there was a time when these kinds of conspiracy theorists, we kind of put them in a category of like nut jobs. You can't really quite do that anymore. Right. Right. Well, one of the other things that I learned in talking to experts about this is that this particular conspiracy theory, the reason it's taken off so much, is that it has taken root in existing right-wing attitudes that are long-standing, like that attitudes and skepticism that provided really fertile ground for this. So for example, you know, believing that the mainstream media is biased leads you to this fake news idea, which leads you to, oh, the media is covering up this sex trafficking, right? Or, you know, it's hard to ignore the overlaps between the sort of pro-life, right-wing, white woman mania, and the save the children, they're being trafficked, and, you know, they're being trafficked and raped by Democrats. Like, there is a thematic overlap there that, like, Democrats are the enemies of children, whether it's that they are supporting abortion, which is that argument on logical ground, because that is a legitimate fight that is, like, actually happening, or this idea that Democrats support child sex trafficking, which is, again, ridiculous. But another aspect of this is also the immigration thing, because Trump and his administration talks about immigration in the context of trafficking. So trafficking is a thing that they bring up in justifying their immigration positions. So that's another sort of thread that these conspiracy theorists weave into this reality. Do you think those are also dog whistles by the Trump administration when they're talking about trafficking and doing events on trafficking? They know what they're doing? I think it's kind of like chicken and the egg, honestly. I I think that opponents of, of illegal immigration have used trafficking as a cudgel for a long time. And, you know, then this conspiracy theory arose that, you know, where a lot of people got really excited about trafficking and then they started to talk about it more. Like, I think it's kind of fed on it. They've fed each other a little bit. And one other just quick follow up. Most of what we're talking about are conspiracy theories on the right. But did you encounter conspiracy theories on the left as well? I did. I encountered fewer, but they were there. They were a little bit more... They were less, I want to say less coherent. And what I mean by that is that it wasn't like I could name it in the way that you could name QAnon. It was more like believing that that the election would be rigged, which is, again, particularly given the president's statements in the last couple of weeks, 
not even that crazy of a thing to think, but believing it would be rigged in a very like sort of maniacal way. People also believed that, I, I met one woman who believed that Trump started COVID himself in order to have a pretense to send people money. But normally, honestly, the conspiracy theories I ran into on the left were like, frankly, slightly exaggerated things of actual things that we do know to be true we, or, or legitimate worries. Like for example, it's legitimate to worry about, you know, the president using his presidential power to impact the outcome of this election. But oftentimes some of the people I talked to like just had a, a more sort of conspiratorial attitude around that. Or for example, you know, we do know that there were outside agitators in many of these Black Lives, Ma Black Lives Matters protests that were starting a lot of this violence. Some of the people I met on the left were kind of like, the whole thing was a hoax or like they were all paid, you know, by the right wing to break windows. When in fact, it's much more complicated than that. But the idea that there was no infiltration is also not true. So it was less, it was way less pronounced and way muddier on the left, I would say. I should point out that the uh, Conspiracy Land series that we did, for which this is a bonus episode, the idea that Joe Scarborough had murdered a uh, congressional staffer of his with whom he was having an affair actually began as a conspiracy theory on the left. And Democrats who wanted to stick it to a then sitting Republican congressman and then over time migrated to Donald Trump and the QAnon crowd. So there is a there is a constancy there. But last question, Charlotte, and it's a cosmic one. I think it's fair to say that people who listen to this podcast or read Time magazine and believe in this stuff are not going to be persuaded that their beliefs are mistaken. So what do we do about the prevalence of these wild, crazy, and even dangerous conspiracy theories? My answer to that is boring and terrifying. One, I don't think this is something that's going to change until Facebook changes. It's felt Facebook and YouTube both change their algorithms. But I think on the short term, a thing that can push back on this is strengthening local news infrastructure and local news media because the mistrust that I heard from these voters was aimed at places like the New York Times and CNN. Um, and I think that if people had more reliable sources of information about their actual communities, they would be drawn back into a fact-based reality. So after I did this story, I like subscribed to all these local newspapers that I were in places that I don't even live just to- Just to support just, them? Just, just to support them. And I would yeah. encourage people who are who are nervous about this to, you know, consider it an investment in democracy. Even if you don't live in Milwaukee, you should subscribe to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Even if you don't live in Michigan, you should subscribe to the D Detroit Free Press because those institutions are really the bulwark, the, that's not the right word, but they're, they are the best guard against people spinning out into this alternate reality. Well, they call them news deserts, those big parts of the country where there are not a lot of local newspapers and, and media outlets, but I guess conspiracy theories, It's those are deserts that are fertile ground for conspiracy right. theories. So Yeah. Well, Charlotte, fantastic piece in time, and uh, we follow you closely. You're 
doing great work. Your dad is a many-time guest on uh, Skullduggery, although you may actually beat him at some point. Yeah. Um. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll get a competition going. Yeah. Um, but anyway, all right, uh, Charlotte, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me.